Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape during week 99 of quarantine from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the smog-shrouded urban sprawl of the City of Angels. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a professor of philosophy at MIT, the author of several books, including the one I am currently enjoying, 2017's Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. Hello and welcome, Karen Setia. Hi, it's great to be here. So the subject of the book that I wanted to talk to you about, uh, Midlife, this is something that all of us will reckon with to some extent or another. Uh, it's huge for some people. For other people, it's minor. Some people will acknowledge that they care about it. Some will pretend they don't. Some will perhaps care about it too deeply and become mired in it. But you wrote a book about it. So before we talk about the subject at large, what do you think it says about you that you decided to spend some time writing that book? Well, it's funny. Yeah, I, I when I... I embraced the idea of having a midlife crisis immediately, partly because I was having a hard time having ended up doing something I really love and it's hard to do. I was very lucky that I, I made it as a as an academic and I wasn't happy with it. And I felt really ashamed and guilty about that. Uh, and I thought that making a joke of it was a good strategy. So part of the attraction for me of the label midlife crisis was that it's sort of self-mocking. And... Yeah, I thought about the other options. I was joked that like the options were to quit my job, which was a bit terrifying, uh, have an affair, mortgage the house and, and buy a fast car. Uh, but my wife suggested that writing a book about it would definitely be a, a healthier solution. So that that's part of it. But it, it is a kind of tendency to to be cerebral. I think part of it was that I thought there is something intellectually really puzzling about the situation I'm in. I, I objectively acknowledge that I'm really fortunate I objectively think that what I'm doing is worth doing. It wasn't that I thought, oh my God, this is all garbage. What was, I was duped or that I didn't care about teaching or studying philosophy. And I still felt that it was totally empty. And I thought, well, that is puzzling. Like, how could that be? How can you be doing something that seems worth doing and yet feel this sort of void inside? And so, yeah, it, it seemed like philosophy ought to have something to say about that kind of emotional, intellectual predicament. At the risk of spoiling the book and the rest of this conversation, you're talking about that era of your life seemingly in the past tense. Do you feel like either through your research or through writing or just through the natural course of things, you have found yourself on the other side of a midlife crisis to whatever extent you had one? I think it's a work in progress. I mean, the I think I'm much clearer about what was wrong with my life and what I would need to do to get over it. I think one of the complications of the kind of intellectual approach I took is that there's it's one thing to realize intellectually how you need to change your orientation. To actually do it sometimes is a further slow, arduous process of working on yourself. So I think it's not exactly over, but I feel like I have a much clearer vision of what I want out of life and what I was doing wrong than I had beforehand. Um, I mean, writing the book was part of that. I mean, part of 
what it did was to was the first time I'd written a book for a non-academic audience, the first time I'd been addressing people other than my colleagues. And that itself, I think, was in ways that I'm still absorbing really uh, enlivening to feel like there were people who were interested in philosophy and that these questions could be made relevant to people who weren't already academics. You refer in the book to your, quote, frantic aversion to the looming void. Well said. Um, and and your your satisfaction in feeling like you had not passed that down to your child. Um, I think my interest in your book is the fact that my father shared that same frantic aversion to the looming void and very much passed it uh, down to me. I, I, yeah. think, I think that's uh, how why I got in touch. And I'd been putting off reading the book. Um, it's been in a stack next to my bed for a while. I think not out of fear of facing the issue, but because I knew that I wanted to read it when I felt like I had the mental space to really reckon with what midlife means when you get to something near or approaching the halfway point and you want to you know, make sense of what you're doing and not just feel like you're flailing. And this year, 2020, I think has given all of us a huge opportunity to evaluate you know, where we are uh, where we're going, what is important to us. And um, now that it appears that there may be some light at the end of the tunnel of the coronavirus situation, it seemed like it was a good time to to gather myself and to make a plan. And, and I think what this book is about, if I understand you correctly, is not just understanding what it is or explaining why people don't need to feel bad about themselves, but it's about how there is a use for a midlife crisis. Is that correct? Like it, it is every crisis is an opportunity. Yeah, and there's a kind of insight in it. So part of it, it, it wasn't that it turned out to be just confused. In fact, I think there's lots of the ways in which life seems problematic. So that facing death, feeling like uh, your projects are empty or feeling like you're always spending your time desperately struggling to keep up with all the demands of life and there isn't any space in it. Those are not sort of confusions. They're pointing to things that are wrong with your life and figuring them out is a way of really understanding what makes human life worth living and what can make human life better. So I, in that sense, it's sort of philosophically fruitful It's and, and emotionally and uh, um, personally fruitful to, to think through your midlife crisis, to sort of lean into it basically, rather than hoping, hoping it will go away. Right. And hopefully at this point in people's lives, they realize that that, that is the only strategy when there's a, when there is a problem, you need to run toward it, not away from it. And so, uh, I'm, I'm no, I'm kind of putting you on the spot and asking you to go through a book that you have probably largely moved on from professionally. But I, I reading through it, I I felt like it broke down into a, a couple of of pieces, um, logical parts that we could talk sure. through. Uh, and I feel like first, when you want to understand what a midlife crisis is and how you can use it, and you have to ask yourself, what does aging do to us? What changes within us? And you, I believe, use the phrase in the book, the mystery of nostalgia. Yeah. And so you need to start by figuring out, well, what was so great about being young anyway? Or was it so great? Or, or, or is, this just, is this a natural thing that overtakes us that we glamorize something that maybe was not so great in, in the reality? And I want to I know what your answer is to that. And I'll tell you what I think my answer is to that. The, the magic of youth in the rearview mirror is that even the wild possibilities for your life are remote. It's unlikely that you'll become, you know, rich and fabulous and whatever. It's all still possible. So the magic of youth is the magic of potential. When you're young, you don't have anything, but you still could have everything. 
and midlife is reckoning with the fact that that is no longer true. That is exactly what I think too. I mean, I think that there's there's sort of parts of it have to do with what you're talking about, this sort of sense of missing out. There's also regret, sort of the ways in which things have gone wrong and you look back and wish you could have it over again. But the, the sense of missing out, I think really does have to do with potential and also with knowledge. I mean, even if it, when you're young, you sort of know you won't get to do all the things you want to do. There'll be all these sacrifices. Things won't turn out the way you wish they would. You know that. It's not like you're sort of unaware of that, but there's a huge difference between knowing in the abstract that you won't get to do things that matter to you and that they won't turn out perfectly. And then actually living through it and thinking, yeah, there are all these, I, I wish I had you know, taken that trip or I wish I had uh, not been fired from that job or I wish I had made a different career choice or met a different person or ended a relationship or started a relationship. And now you have all the specifics, like you have the actual people and the actual possibilities that you don't, you didn't pursue in front of you. And so that's something that um, I think makes a difference. And it makes a difference in a way that I think philosophy can often miss because often when you're doing philosophy, you're sort of abstracting from all the details and just saying, well, what's better or worse, what's going to happen in a way that makes it sound as though just knowing uh, that your potential won't be fully realized is you ought to that ought to already carry the emotional charge, but it doesn't. It, it, there's a huge difference between between sort of knowing that you'll miss out on things and knowing what they are and sort of watching them go by in the way that at at our age uh, you you sort of know you know what it is that you're not doing in a way that at least at seventeen I really didn't. Do you think? It's inevitable for at least the vast majority of people that one will look back at some point in their life and feel like one has come up short. I was struck a very long time ago by a quote from, I think it's um, Disraeli, the British prime minister from the 19th uh -huh. century, who I know was, even by prime minister standards, a pretty successful statesman. And the quote, which I would guess you may have heard is, youth is a blunder, manhood a struggle, old age a regret. And what struck me about that was not just the sentiment, but who said it. And I'm thinking if a guy who made his way to being prime minister feels that his life has been ineffective, how am I going to feel about mine? I think that's right. And I think part of what I found consoling and tried to, one of the consolations I tried to share in the book was the sense that it would be really worrying if you didn't feel like that. If you didn't feel like there was an immense amount in life you'd missed out on, how could that be? Like the only way you could go through life and not think, well, I never got to be in a band and I never owned a dog and I never, like whatever the things are that you might've done and didn't do. If you weren't able to look back and think life offered much more than I was ever able to do, that could only be because you were somehow blinkered. You were just not really seeing it or you, you were sort of a monomaniac who only cared about one thing. So I think it, it's part of having an appreciation for the how diverse the good things in life can be and how much is actually worth caring about that makes, that's sort of the flip side of this sense that you've missed out on things. And so in a way you can't really avoid it if you're kind of attentive to the world and you also can't really regret it because it, it wouldn't be as if one would prefer to, to sort of have no sense of the value of all the other things there are in the world. So in that sense, yes. I mean, I, I, I think there's a kind of inevitability to it that's, that's comforting. Uh, that it, it's not a sign of, I mean, it can be a sign that something's gone wrong, but the fact that you, you you have a sense in midlife that there's all this stuff you wish you could have done, 
that's not by itself a sign that you've done anything wrong. It's just a sign that you have a sense of how much is out there. That just simply how beautiful life is, really. Yeah, right. And that's a kind of reframing that that I I at least find helpful when I look back and and sort of have a sense of the the relative narrowness, the sort of way in which, at least if when you have a mortgage and a, a a job like mine, you're sort of pretty much locked into doing it. And it would be very scary to try and leave and do something else. I mean, some people I think have the courage to do that, but I'm, I'm <laughs> I feel like that, that was never, it was never realistically on the table for me that I was going to quit. It was more about coming to terms with how to carry on doing what I was doing and how to find both sort of, solace and also joy in, in continuing to do it right and and probably one ought not blow it all up and start over in in their 40s because you know history is written by the victors is, is also true in this sense if someone successfully does that you might well be reading some profile about them on the internet or in the new yorker someday but they will not be writing the profiles about the 90 percent of other people who do that and realize that they've given away how many things that were so important to them and were unable to replace those things. That's probably not the way to deal with your midlife. Crisis. I think that's true. I think I, I, I also think there are lots of ways in which it can seem tempting that are sort of illusory, like that the sense of, of sort of missing out and wanting options again, insofar as it's really just about sort of potential and not knowing what's happening. The allure is sort of, a, it's sort of an illusion. It's not like, I mean, when I actually when I project back nostalgically into my life as a teenager, thinking, oh, there are all these options, I sort of, I forget the flip side, which is as a teenager, I didn't have any idea what I was gonna do. And there was all the terror of that as well. And so I think there's ways in which th this sort of sense of nostalgia for possibility is just deceptive. And before you make the decision to say, yeah, I'm gonna quit my job and blow it all up and start over again, I think there's something to be said for trying to think through the ways in which those kinds of feelings can be can be misleading and and not really an accurate guide to whether what you're doing makes sense. So in trying to figure out why midlife crises have such a huge role in individual lives and just become such a thing in the culture, something that occurred to me in reading your book is that you're not really asking yourself new questions, which is what is it all about? You pretty much start asking yourself that as soon as you start developing an adult brain. I think it's maybe the first time in your life that you feel like you really need to have an answer to that. It's very, very important to you on an existential level that you know what, what the heck you think you're doing here. And then I, I note that I think there are really two different kinds of midlife crises. One is when you're merely facing the reality of your, the inevitability of your decline and your demise and, and, and reckoning with that. And then there's the kind where you're facing your, the inevitability of your decline and demise and also the sense that, oh my goodness, I have really made some horrible mistakes. I am pretty sure I've messed up here and that I, I, I cannot probably blow those things up without resulting in maybe something even worse. But you would argue that even if that is your personal situation, that a midlife crisis can still be a productive exercise for you. Yes, I think that's right. I do think the this dealing with real regrets or real ways in which you've either done things you know you shouldn't have done or things have happened to you that were terrible and have shaped the course of your life or things in your life you've tried to do that were really important that have failed. That It's much harder and much, um, uh, it's much more difficult to 
think your way through that kind of problem. But I, I do think there are ways to do it. I mean, so one of the, the ideas comes from a, a um, bunch of thought experiments that contemporary philosophers have have been playing around with. But the, the basic point is one that I think a lot of parents are sort of familiar with, which is um, sometimes it's possible to do things that uh, were mistakes or have things happen to you that weren't good and then later not regret them. It's not, regret is sort of not inevitable. And one way that can happen is when, if you look back at bad decisions you might've made that ended up leading to the particular precise circumstances in which you meet your partner or, and you have a child, and you can look back and think, well, maybe I shouldn't have got drunk that night, or maybe I should never have gone to that school, or maybe I shouldn't have quit my job. But if I hadn't, I wouldn't have this whole train of events would not have unfolded and my child would not exist. And so there's this way in which attachment to particular people and to their existence, even when it depends on things that at the time really were regrettable, really were bad, can sort of change your attitude to them in retrospect. And I think that's a more general phenomenon that people are capable of engaging in that I think isn't a mistake. It's not sort of rationalizing or just explaining away ways in which you've gone wrong to look back and appreciate how particular things you do value now just wouldn't have been possible without them. That's sort of a possibility for, for reframing life that our capacity as sort of storytellers, as narrative beings makes available. And I, yeah, so that's a way in which even, even when things have really gone wrong, there's a, a kind of possibility for sort of rethinking and thinking through anew how you relate to your past that can reconcile you to it partly. I mean, I don't think this is sort of a guarantee that everyone's always going to feel okay about their past decisions. Sometimes, right. you know, sometimes it really was just a terrible mistake and you can't help but regret it. But it, it's not as simple as that in most cases because so much of your life depends on the ways in which you, you know, suffered or went wrong in the past. Sure. If you come out of a bad situation or a, a regrettable situation or uh, having had a mistake with a child that you love or children that you love, I can I can see that. But absent that specific outcome where you have children that you love, how do you recommend someone deal with a midlife crisis that doesn't involve children? They love? Yeah. So, this is, so I think the case that's clearest and easiest to get your head around is one where uh, yeah. and I think a lot of people are already familiar with this where they say, ah, oh, you know, we relationship ended in divorce, but, but mm -hmm. the kids would, I wouldn't have my daughter otherwise. So yeah, that's, yeah, right. yeah. Yes. that's, that's sure. a, that's a familiar thing. I think that the, the, yeah, the, the question is how far that extends and whether you, it makes sense to be attached to other things in your life. So it's sort of, um, people whose existence doesn't depend on you, like people you might not have met otherwise, or particular mm. activities or uh, uh, hobbies or um, work projects or other things that really matter to you, but would have been very different otherwise. And I think there, I think what's going on is also, as in the case of missing out, it's what philosophers call epistemic or epistemological. It has to do with, with sort of knowledge because the, I think the phenomenon we find is that people, even when they look at um, ways in which their lives have turned out that, are, that they think are you know, worse than some alternative, their sort of sense of the specific detail of the ways in which their life is at least pretty good can counteract this sort of abstract thought 
well, it could have been better. Because even if you think, well, it could have been better, and even if you have a kind of vague sense of how that could have been, emotionally, I think we just don't respond. And I think it's sort of a perfectly rational, healthy, emotional kind of feature of us that we don't respond in the same way to the thought, well, it might have been better, as we do to the sort of particular features of our lives. There's a way in which the sort of concrete texture of life is something that makes available a kind of attachment that's it's not unlike the attachment you have to a particular human being when you have a child. And that's the the sort of way of generalizing or broadening the, the kind of way a lot of people do feel about their attachment to their children and the way in which it depends on past mistakes that can extend the same kind of affirmation to, you know, other things in their lives. So I don't know, maybe an example helps. Like I, 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 I do periodically think, you know, maybe I shouldn't have gone into philosophy and I should have just been a doctor. My father was a doctor. He wanted me to do that. And I think to some extent, I, I ruled it out on the grounds that he wanted me to do it, which is not the, the, the not the, the best reason for deciding a major uh, life um, ambition. But even when I think, well, yeah, maybe it would have been better to be a doctor. I would have helped other people more. It would have been, it, it would have been a more fulfilling thing to do. My knowledge of what that would have been like is basically like, you know, extends as far as watching scrubs and er you know i don't really know what i think sounds kind of fun i don't know whereas in philosophy even if i think it's worse the sort of sense of the particular just all the students i've known like the idea that i would give all of that up even though it might have been a better life i think no i i think i would go with the current the life i have and and the particular connections and activities and people in it even if someone told me, yeah, you could have had a better life as a doctor. And so that I think is more general than just the case where it's about having a child. It sounds like what you're saying, and and this would apply to most people's lives, even if they feel like they have regrets and have made mistakes, is just simply a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. When you wanted to be a rock star and instead you took a job at H&R Block and then you're 45 years old and realize you've never cared to work at H&R Block and are sick of tax returns and think we should just have a flat tax anyway, (laughs) you might sit there and say it would have been great been a rock star and that's valid. Yes, it would have been better to be a rock star than to work at H&R Block, but it's at least as likely, if not far more likely, that you would have been a failed musician in which case you would gladly take your present reality and everybody who fantasizes about what they missed out on needs to attach some value to the the other very plausible realities they missed out on which are probably worse yeah yeah i think there's so two yeah absolutely wherever they find themselves yes yeah yeah i mean i think there's sort of two parts to one one is this sort of sense that it's easy to neglect the risks and think yeah it would have been great to be a rock star but that wasn't ever the choice you had you had the choice to try yes and, yes. and, you know, that would have been a huge gamble. And then there's also just, you know, working for H&R Block, you think, yeah, but I mean, it, it could be terrible, but it's suppose you're working for H&R Block and you like some of your coworkers and you're happy with your relationship. And, you know, life could have been better. It could always have been better. But there's a way in which just sort of attending to the, the, the as you said, the bird in the hand, the sort of reality of the good things can matter emotionally more and kind of can outweigh these sort of nebulous possibilities that things could have been better. And that sort of letting go of those possibilities does feel like something that is part of a a kind of healthy emotional adjustment to, to middle age. Facing 
your midlife crisis and facing middle age is in large part about facing mortality. That's that's what midlife crises probably really come down to. You realize you only have finite time and then you face the the oblivion. I'm fond of the phrase. I don't know if Joseph Campbell coined it. Man is the only animal who knows he's going to die. Yeah. Animals animals don't have midlife crises. Your dog will not have to reckon with this sort of thing. I wonder, and this is not a question that philosophy is going to give you any answer to. I just wonder, in your personal opinion, it seems to me that in our society, and maybe you want to start with the boomer generation or however you want to place it, millennials, who cares, that our, our vanity, our sense of ego, our sense of self-importance, at least in American society, Western society, seems like it is becoming greater. I witness people, um, older people in my life who are um, pre-boomer, you know, people who were born in the 30s and, and early 40s who have maybe a partner dies or something like that. And I feel like they're just able to, I mean, of course, they're sad and of course they internalize it, but they're also just talking about the catering that they're going to get for the wake uh -huh. in, in the same breath. And I find myself being almost jealous of their lack of ego and their lack of self-importance do you sense that in our society the issue of midlife crises would be growing because of our growing sense of self-worth and 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 growing self-obsession that's a good question i'm not sure i mean i i think in general there's a real risk in sort of self-obsession um and self-concern that makes the project of sort of writing a self-help book or thinking about self-help slightly perverse or at least slightly complicated, which is that I do think that the more you're obsessed with your own happiness and your own well-being, actually the harder it is to actually live well or to have a happy life because in order to live a, a happy life and to live well, you've got to be sort of attached to other things. You have to have other things to care about. And so, um, the more people's lives become about the sort of pursuit of happiness, paradoxically, I think the harder it is to to successfully pursue it. I don't know whether I, like I'm really hesitant to generalize about what what whether millennials are doing that because despite all the avocado toasts and everything, I feel like millennials are also the generation that is open to socialism in a way that previous generations weren't. And whatever you make, whatever your attitude to socialism, there's there's a, a thought this is not just about me, we have to be in this together. And so I, I think it, it may be that that the pendulum is sort of swinging back the other way. But so maybe maybe I was in the generation where, you know, 90s generation, 80s, 90s generation of peak egoism, uh, which which is especially yeah. prone to this kind of this kind of um, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember the, the the TV show 30 something comes yeah, to mind right. as the absolute the absolute epitome of of this yes yeah yeah i mean i yeah so there there is a kind of a kind of strategic problem which is that i think navel gazing is pro a problem and so you've got to sort of figure out how to quarantine it like how to do enough navel gazing to stop navel gazing and actually re-engage with the world and that's the kind of engagement that's going to make it uh possible for you to to get over the the midlife crisis and be able to be satisfied again but um I have hope for the for the millennial generation, I think, or at least I guess it's maybe it's, I'm I'm never good on the generations. It might be the one after the millennials that seems even more even more. My son is 14, and he I guess is no, not a millennial. He's like Gen, 
Z? Is that I what they call to, it? I think we're up to Z. Gen yeah, Z. We're, I don't, we're, um, we're gonna have a real trouble naming the so guys after. I feel that. like I'm totally not objective about Gen Z because I I, I have one of them in my family and uh, and yeah. I love him, but uh, they seem good. I feel like the kids might be all right. It's there just there just needs to be enough time for them to take over the world mm-hmm. and and for the rest of us. I tend to agree. Maybe avocado toast is just delicious. Yeah, Maybe yeah exactly. That wasn't. Yeah, I think we. Yeah. <laughs> of all the things to 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 blame people for, avocado toast, one of the, <laughs> the most objectively great discoveries of uh, of the early twenty first century. I mean, that. Yeah, that's. Yeah, we should. I, I made some for that. my children this morning, and, and I, I will die on on the on the hill of avocado yeah, toast. Yeah, that's very. Yeah, that seems right. Um, another question in regard to facing mortality. One of the big sea changes in the West in um, the last couple of hundred years is the decline of the role that religion plays right. in our lives. How you, you in the book you talk about the history of midlife crises going back to pre-Christ times. How is a midlife crisis different in a non-religious age? Yeah, I mean, I it's a complicated question because I, I, you know, I, I come from the the UK where. I think religion really is on the decline and that the, the the number of people who go to church is very small. The U.S. It seems really complicated to me still. I've been here for a while now, and I still just mm-hmm. don't have a kind of native sense of what the religious landscape is like, because there are lots and lots of people who are observant in one way or another and say they believe in life after death. What they mean yeah. may not always be clear. But yeah, so I... I for me, but real, well, if I may interject, yeah, yeah. when you're talking no. about the, 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 that nebulous group of people, you have a hard time wrapping your brain around in America. They're real and they're out there and they're numerous. They're not the people who are reading your yeah. book or for the most part <laughs> listening to this. So we're, we're talking about okay. the people of which, you know. Yeah, yeah. You, well, so, so I yeah, for me, it definitely the, the the a backdrop to thinking about midlife is the sense that death is really going to be the end. And that mm-hmm. I now have a sense of what that means, that I have, you know, I think I was always terrified of death, even as a child, but th- then it just seemed like a kind of, it seemed both terrifying and imminent, but also uh, incredibly distant. And I couldn't, I didn't think of it as something that was really a kind of realistic thing to plan for. Whereas now I think mm-hmm. maybe you feel, it sounds like you share the fear of death uh, in your bones, like the, the sense that, I kind of now have a sense of what the number of decades I have left is like, and so yeah. there's a way. That's why teens love. Te- that's why teens love horror movies. It's still fun for them. To yeah, right. I think. Death. Yeah, I think. I I used to love horror movies too, and yeah, I don't. Especially since my son was born, I'm like, no, I don't uh, feel the the need for that anymore. So yeah, yeah I have I, enough real horror. Thank you. Yes, exactly. I mean, yeah. So so yeah, I do think that the sense that death is really the end changes one's attitude to what to do with sort of one's mortal life and that that is a kind of shift i mean i think there's also the other kind of big shift about death i think which is connected with religion but not exactly the same is the 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 way in which it's um much less in public view and it's much more something that happens privately it happens in hospitals and rituals of mourning also were bound up with religion people don't really know how to there's a sort of sense of not knowing how to die or how to deal with bereavement because the kind of structures that made that all intelligible are fragmenting along with religion. And that I think is very, even though I'm not religious and don't particularly imagine myself coming to believe in God, I think I do feel a sort of loss of the sense of just sort of knowing what to do when uh, someone dies that like, 
that there's a I don't have a, a an immediate religious context in which to put that. I mean, like religious as in as in sort of religious practice in which to slot that. And so it feels like you're just making stuff up as you go as you go along, and that I think is very uh, disorienting too. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I'll, I'll mention Joseph Campbell. It's very disappointing and frustrating to me that I, you know I used to religiously. No, no pun intended, listen to his lectures from, I think they were like the 1960s. And the whole thing was, okay, now that all of the traditional re religions have fallen and are in ruins at our feet, how are we going to continue to act on these very human impulses? The sorts of things that yeah, you're talking yeah. about. It is the reason why we have death rituals is because we need to process death. They were performing a function and his whole idea is now that that's gone, what are we going to do? And to be living in a 2020 where those things are still somehow persisting and it almost just feels like, and I know this is very cynical and insulting to a religious person, that we're holding on to things that we know no longer work simply because we have not found something with which to replace them. Yeah. This is a, a huge um, stasis that is not really healthy for us as as humankind. We need to actively be finding out the new ways that we process these things because, as Joseph Campbell says, dinosaurs are real. They found the bones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We need to reckon with that, yes. you know? Yeah. Do you think, just in, in, in a larger sense, does one need to have a fixed opinion about what happens after we die, whatever that fixed opinion is, in order to comfortably approach death, reckon with it, make, you know, make plans for your life in light of its looming inevitability? I don't know how to generalize about that. I, I feel like I would feel really lost if I didn't have a view about what's going to happen when I die. Right. And I'd, I'd, in some ways would rather have the definite bleak view that it's going to be the yeah. end than to feel like I, I'm not sure because I wouldn't know what to do with uncertainty. Whereas with facing the void, you can think, okay, I know what I'm dealing with. I wish I wasn't maybe, but at least I can now come to terms with it or try to come to terms with it. And so for me, at least it's just, it's clarifying to think about it in those uncompromising terms. I don't know, how about you? Do, do you feel like it, you, you wish you weren't? I don't know, I'm guessing that you, you do think it's going to be the end. You don't believe in any kind of life after. No, yeah, maybe not. Mm, I'm, a bit of, I'm a bit of a romantic in, in that regard. I tend to think that there's a reason why so many civilizations independent of one another came to such incredibly similar notions of what life is and where life came from and what happens to it after we die. And that's why I tend to think that the way that we talk about religion, as I said, those things are, the traditional religions are now hollow, but the spirit that brought them all to be in the first place is, is, is a real thing. I'm inclined to think that there is an animating, and I would like to believe, benevolent force to the universe from which our spirit came and to which it returns. And I guess I'm inclined to think in an Eastern sort of way that I, my cells are in possession of a little bit of life force that will be dispersed back out into the universe. This does have meaning that transcends our existence here on planet Earth, just like the me, the self, the mic that I know will cease to be whenever I die. So I guess I'm just kind yeah. of having my cake and eating yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, when you think about... It's funny because I, I think there's sort of completely atheistic analogs of that that I find really attractive. And then there's a kind of right. metaphorical language that I'm like, oh, I'm uncomfortable with. But I, I do think a kind of transition that I feel like I'm in the midst of of trying to make it, that connects with that is to think 
look, I'm going to die. So the more I can sort of invest in and imagine some kind of future after I'm gone in which if not me, other humans, not even my son, but just like other humans manage to live on in some way that looks like it's good <laughs> that I can actually look, look at it and think, yeah, we're on the right track. This is this, we're getting mm -hmm. somewhere. That seems increasingly really important to me. And that is a kind of concrete version of the thought something about us as humans will continue. And it's really important to be able to hope for that and to feel like there's, there's some chance that it will, it will be better than what we have lived through. I mean, I think that that's why, for instance, I think climate change is so terrifying because it's not just that people will suffer. It's also that everything else we care about, like the possibility of a more equal society, a more just society, a fairer future, all of those things are imperiled if, we have this sort of terrible scarcity of resources and terrible um, uh, sort of storms and droughts and floods and famine. And so there, I think that there's a kind of just concrete desire for future generations to, to sort of pick up on whatever we're doing and make things better in the future. That is like, I mean, thinking about future generations that way is the sort of, um, yeah, the fully atheistic version of thinking the human spirit will continue into the future and there's something beyond us that really matters. Um, so that I'm really invested in. And then, yeah, the kind of metaphysics, I feel much more like of, of what it would mean for us as and our individual lives or consciousnesses to go on. I'm, I'm more skeptical about, but, sure. but I think in some ways the effect in, in, in terms of extending your vision of what you care about in life is probably the same either way. It's a way of sort of trying to think about what you what matters beyond the bounds of your own 90 years. Well, and I think at some point, I, I believe I have concluded, it's hard to know what I'm still going to believe 30 years from now, but whether or not it's all over when we die, it doesn't affect what I ought to be doing now. If this is it, then I would take the same lessons from that than I would if all of a sudden the Christian Bible were definitive, you know, if the, if the clouds part and the guy with the, the, the beard is there. I would not find happiness and fulfillment in my life stealing purses from little old ladies under any circumstances, right? right. So it, right. it kind of doesn't, I, I mean, I just asked you, does it matter to have a fixed idea about the end of life? And now I'm arguing, no, I don't I, actually believe that it that it does. No, I agree with you about that. And I think there's, there is like one of the ways in which religion is, I think, uh, pernicious. I mean, I think there are benign and wonderful things about it too. But one way it's, in which it's pernicious is the sort of the way in which, and this is prevalent in America, that people associate morality with religion and sort of think, well, if you're not religious, that kind of means you're amoral or you don't really you know. And that is, I think, just a confusion. And that there's nothing at all that prevents people who aren't religious who, and certainly people who don't believe in an afterlife from nevertheless recognizing that other people matter and uh, trying to care about them and, and treat them decently. And so disentang I think in that sense, questions about how to live can be disentangled in the way you're describing from, from these kind of hard to answer metaphysical questions about what ultimately happens when we die. Right. Right. And, and ultimately what we're talking about when we're talking about midlife crises is just what is the meaning of life? What is, what is, what are we doing here and how do we best make use of this gift that we have regardless of how we came to be in possession of it? And you used a word that I, 
I'm so happy I read your book simply because I have not heard this word since a, a high school philosophy class, and that word is eudaimonia. Yeah. Which I'm not even entirely sure at this point I'm still pronouncing No, correctly. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the, for people who aren't familiar with it, this is a Socratic think no this is a, a a plato thing taken from socrates and the best way that i can describe it is it's the sort of the counterpoint the other side of the coin of hedonism lasting pleasures versus fleeting pleasures yeah i mean it's and even i would say even even an even stronger kind of counterpoint to hedonism and that that eudaimonia is sort of the idea of a flourishing life living well and mm -hmm. I think it's really like it's really important to sort of distinguish the goal in life of living well, like living a good life, from feeling happy. And everyone wants to feel happy. Nothing wrong with feeling happy, but as a goal, the goal of just feeling happy and the goal of actually living a good life are just not the same. And it was really important to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle that the the right goal, and this is sort of sort of almost obvious, like, obviously you should live the way you should live. Like the the best kind of life to aim for is a good life. Like it, it's sort of a platitude. And yes. yet, I th and yet why is that so hard? I think, right, but I think it's, to do it's, that. it's sort of a, it, it, it's really important to, to sort of start from the right target and to recognize that that target is just different from um, feeling good feelings. And sometimes you have to sacrifice the good feelings in order to do what you should do. And uh, that's how it goes. And, and that, that sort of way of framing the kind of ethical question or the question of the kind of question we face throughout our lives, but that can come into focus in a particularly situated way in midlife, I do think is really a great insight of ancient Greek philosophy that, that uh, we should cling to. Well, I think it's a great big divining rod. And as I say, it was a very welcome reminder for me because for this past year, like very many people and like many parents and busy people under even ordinary circumstances, I'm so busy with handling what I need to do on a day-to-day -day basis that I have very little time or energy left to try to devote myself to, you know, the good life, the things that I ought to be doing, the things that I believe that I should be doing. I have had enough time for a little bit of hedonism. <laughs> and there have been times where, uh, as I imagine many parents and, and people in general have, where I have a long weekend and I go, well, I'm going to get some of that beer that I like and we're going to get some of that food that I like and then you find yourself with that Sunday night emptiness of I've done I've got all the things that were going to make me happy and yet I don't feel I feel a bit empty right now and that's because hedonism is an empty goal and it's great you know go go on a go on a cruise and stuff your face and lay out by the beach but like if the end goal of your year is that week that you go on the cruise for most people, at least most thinking people, most spiritual people, that's not going to make you happy. And I feel like at the at the end of all of this, that's what the midlife crisis is about to. And, and I think that maybe the nature of it has changed because most people listening to this can reasonably expect to live quite a bit longer than people used to. Time was, if you started to feel when you were 45 that you'd wasted things, I don't know how much time you really have to make that right. If you're 40 years old nowadays and you feel like I did what I had to do to survive and to build my life and now there are things about it that I can live with and then there are things that I cannot live with, 
well, the time is now. Like I said, it used to, you've always wanted to know the answers to these questions. Midlife is when you need to finally go, what the hell am I doing and what am I going to do about it? And the good news is if you're 40 years old, you can plan for the reasonable expectation that you have you have time to fix that. You can figure out what's really bothering you, what you really need to feel fulfilled and 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 actually reorient yourself towards this eudaimonia. I think that's good news. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I mean, one thing that sort of really brings out is that the, the kind of plight you described at the beginning of feeling like there's all this stuff you need to do that has to get done. If that leads you to, to say, well, this weekend, I'm just going to kick back. Um, there's nothing wrong with kicking back, but it's not an alternative to getting done what needs to be done. Because that way of engaging with pleasure, the thought, I just need the weekend off, you're not actually it's another thing that needs to be done. It's another way of saying, well, look, in order to be able to make it through the next week, I have to relax this weekend and just like get drunk on Friday night and like whatever. And and again, nothing wrong with that, but it's not really an escape from the grind. It's another element. It's like another cog in the wheel that gets you moving through the next week. And so really to think about the things that matter to you, you have to think about things that aren't answers to needs or necessities, even in the way that is, even in the way that kicking back can be an answer to a need. And so Aristotle says, you know, we, we relax in order that we can be active again. And so the good things that really matter are going to be in some way or another active. And what that could be different for each of us. But uh, I think it's not going to take the form ultimately of just, of just, yeah, kicking back. It's going to be something that you positively want to do that isn't just solving a problem so you can get on to the next thing. And uh, that could be hard to see at midlife. You know, midlife is the, the sort of, you're in the sandwich where you've got your, many of us have kids, many of us have aging parents, that all, the, the sort of sense that like most of my life is just dealing with stuff that I have to deal with. And uh, that the, the, the kind of window for me is narrowing. Uh, um, uh, that is, a kind of, I think, a kind of structural feature of, of uh, people's, longevity and timelines right now. Well, and another thing that may or may not be a feature of that, the one thing I wanted to ask you about is the fact that at some point in all likelihood, you will have time. The kids will grow up and, and move out and you'll get that back. But will you still have the same energy and vitality that you had when you were 20, when you're 55 or 60 or whatever? Probably not. Will you still have the same creative vigor. That's sort of my question. You mentioned in the book, the number of artists who never created anything that added to their legacy after you specifically put it around the age of 37. Yeah. 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 Um, but that's obviously not the case for all artists based on your knowledge of this subject. What would you guess is the difference between the artists who said what they had to say as artists, as young people, and those who continue to have something to say through midlife and beyond? Huh, that is a very hard question. And it's funny because it's a question that you'd think I would have thought about before and have a <laughs> have a pat answer to. But instead, I'm thinking, oh, man, what, what can I say about that? I mean, I, I can, I'm not uh, suggesting that I'm a great artist, but I do think that my, my own case is the one that's most salient to me. And I, I think the sure. thing that's happened to me that I wasn't expecting and that I, I hope is a good decision is I sort of went into this thinking, the challenge of my midlife crisis is to carry on doing exactly what I'm doing, but not feel so uh, bad about it. Um, and mostly the book is sort of framed that way. It's a book about how to 
see what you're doing without really changing it outwardly, but to see it differently and find new value in it, realize the ways in which the desire for change can be deceptive. But I think what's actually happening to me uh, that isn't really in the book is that I have, since writing it, started doing things that I didn't do beforehand. Like I've, I've, um, I've written more personal essays about my life or I've written about things that I hadn't written about beforehand. And so what's actually happening that I think is really helping me through is, is change basically. And that isn't really a theme of the book so much like the, the, the uh, embracing change and being open to change. But if I had to guess what makes the difference between artists uh, and people whose lives stall and people who, um, have a flourishing second half of life, I would, I think probably that part of that has to do with being willing to accept change and to, to, to sort of trust your sense of the need for it, because there is a kind of stagnation that, that um, is possible. And that I think was, again, not, it's not really in the book that much, but I do think in retrospect was part of what was, was weighing me down. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think I think that kind of openness is probably important, and it's also a thing that you you might people might find they struggle with because it's easy to become, as they say, set in your ways to have a sense that you don't need to rethink your life um, because you've sort of got it figured out, even if what you've got figured out isn't really that satisfying, but it's kind of okay. Well, so much of life is not so much about it's about making your peace with reality regardless of the extent to which you really like that reality. And I feel like your subject has potentially a happy conclusion because you you talk about in the book this sort of U-shaped curve of satisfaction with life where young people yeah. are happy and then you have the the midlife frustrations and in some cases crises. It seems to me that if midlife were about realizing um, I've messed everything up and I can't fix it, and now my body's going to stop working, and then I'm going to die. You would not have a U-shaped curve. You would actually have yeah, satisfaction right. <laughs> that just got worse and worse and <laughs> worse with- and worse. And nobody would want to hang out with old people in their lives at all because they would be the most depressing people you've ever met. And yet they come through this, and they reckon with it, and they make their peace with it, some with greater success than others, and then they carry on and are, are willing to find something approaching wisdom at the end of their life. And that's something we can all hope to do and try to do well. I think that's right. And it, it, it's encouraging. So the, 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 sort of the thing you're referring to is this social science done by economists where they track people's sort of sense of life satisfaction over the, their lifetimes. And it's, it's true, right? It goes up again in old age. No one fully understands exactly why. It's, very, it's much easier to do social science once you just get the basic data. It's much harder to do it in an explanatory way in which you figure out the reasons. But I suspect you're right. There's, a, there's an, an awful amount of uh, coming to terms with the fact that life is what it is, and that's enough. It's mostly good enough, and there's mostly enough that's good in it to make you feel glad that you lived rather than not. And that's a kind of transition that a lot of people go through. It, it is, it's both encouraging to think that it might get better. And I think there's a certain kind of comfort in thinking in, in middle age, you're not alone. Like the, the sense that in your 40s, this is the hardest period uh, is not idiosyncratic. Like it really is hard. And, and, the, and the, that data holds up for men and women. It holds up for most countries around the world. Um, we're not making it up. It really, <laughs> there really is a kind of difficult period to get through. Uh, and I find that that sort of consoling too. 
I agree. And for that reason, I would recommend people read your book. I think, you know, uh, an unexamined life is not worth living. And this is the time, a really, really good time in our lives to be examining our lives. It's uh, it's called Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. And in addition to that, if anybody needs more philosophy in their podcast diet, they can also check out your Five Questions podcast. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, especially on a holiday week. I appreciate it. Uh, um, thanks for your time and, and happy Thanksgiving, Kieran Setia. Thank you very much. It's been great to talk to you. Likewise.